Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks everyone for joining us for Isaac's Autism Well podcast. I am podcasting with my friend Meg, who has worked in the CPS system as a social worker, not in our area, um, but in the state of Washington. And so I thought, what a great topic that we could um, put out there is on the CPS process. I don't know about you, Meg, but I can tell you that over the years, um, I've worked with a lot of families who have contacted us because they were reported by a mandatory reporter um, and they have a child with a disability. And, um, you know, I would say I see I definitely during quarantine, um, it seems like, you know, I'm getting I'm hearing more from families. And I don't know if it's just that, you know, we're sitting around more because we have less to do. And so I get more outreach. And so families are contacting us. But it's been a problem for a long time where, you know, they'll call, they'll ask us questions about what should we do, um, you know, we're not abusing our child. Um, and so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if I could get my good friend Meg, who we've known each, I've known you ever since you were little, um, but I know this is your area, you've helped me and given me some, you know, like direction because of my bonus son, Trevor, that we um, were able to um, home many years ago. So you're a wealth of knowledge, just understanding understanding the system. So you're joining me today. Welcome, first and foremost. Thank Um, you for having me. Yes. So you're a social worker by education and you've worked in a lot of different sectors, um, but you've also worked in the CPS system as, would you say an investigator? Is that would be, have been what your job title was? I uh, actually cross-trained as a child protective services investigator and family assessment response worker. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll get to dive in deep with both of those. Uh, Perfect. Unit, so which will be fun. Clearly, Meg, I don't have to tell you because you understand because you have done me for a long time. Actually, you had the benefit of even knowing my son Isaac before he passed away. You may not remember him super well, um, mm-hmm. but... Um, is it fair to say, so you interact with a lot of families um, and you do a lot of interacting um, and as well with families who have kiddos with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Correct. so we've talked, yeah. I have asked you in the past because I'm trying to understand this whole concept of mandatory reporting. And so you kind of have walked me through kind of what this looks like. So certain types of individuals because of their vocation are mandatory reporters. So can you explain to me like kind of what a mandatory reporter is for those that are listening? Absolutely. So mandatory reporting um, comes from a lot of different areas, but just so everybody knows, anybody can call CPS and make a report. And sometimes, actually a lot of times that does happen, but um, we're looking at and what a mandatory reporter is. could be a doctor, um, primary care, right? Primary care is huge. You have um, within those partners, uh, right? You have people who are speech language pathologists, um, medical examiners, right? You have law enforcement who comes in, teachers, all of that. Daycare There's a huge workers. long list online. It's for the public. 
Yeah. Say that again. It's for daycare, daycare workers absolutely. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, daycare workers. I mean, you have a lot of people who directly work with children. And I think legally that's where it falls under the category of mandatory reporting. Gotcha. And um, any employee, like any public employee, they're mandatory reporters too. Um, so like say I, if I saw somebody or saw a situation that would fall either under suspected or known abuse or neglect, I would be obligated within 24 hours to make a report. Yeah. Um, and sometimes what I've seen too is that people wait after that 24 hours and when we, the problem we run into with that is that after the 24 hours, if you're waiting like a week to report, right, when you saw something like say a kiddo has a bruise and that might be what we're talking about today, right? Yeah. <laughs> say a kiddo has a bruise and somebody waits to report. By the time we get out there and see it, it's going to be gone probably. It's going to look different probably. Um So hopefully, I mean, we'll dive deeper into what that looks like, but I mean, from anybody's knowledge, no bruise is, has a timeline or anything like that. It all depends on the person, you know, and actually I'm the first to admit that in my life, depending on my health, you know, I either bruise really easily or like, man, I can take a beating and you would hardly even notice it. It just has to do with my health and my, um, you know, just where some of my health such things are in terms of being treated. And so I totally understand what you're saying. But the longer you wait, the more um, those signs and, you know, evidence that you would need to evaluate fade. Um, it's interesting. And we're talking- by the way, I'm no medical expert. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Like, you know, that's the thing is, you know, that's one of the things we want to talk about. What type of expertise, Meg, did you have as a, like, CPS investigator? I mean, like, really, it's hard. It is hard. So, I mean, we go through ongoing extensive trainings. I mean, we have trauma trainings. We have our medical experts who come in and give us presentations and all of the education we would need. And you know what, too? A lot of cases, Holly, go um, to medical experts. So um, there is a provider who specifically works with children, um, who might have been abused or neglected in my area. And so when we get a case like that, we refer to her and the kiddos go see her and she does that evaluation. So even if we have possible evidence, we just want to make sure and get that extra layer of, oh my gosh, I need somebody who is, yeah. um, An has a degree to do this. Yeah, yeah. for An sure. expert. Yeah. So when we're talking about mandatory reporting, we're talking about abuse and neglect. And it's so interesting, Meg, because you, again, you and I had talked because I, um, Trevor, my bonus son came into my life and it was a clear case of neglect, um, in terms of just not having parents present and him doing a lot of couch surfing. And it's always interesting to me. And it's really kind of mind blowing that, you know, my son went years and struggled with on and off homelessness, having being unaccompanied by a parent, um, and just staying with different people. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to me that no one reported it. And it could be his age because he was in the eighth grade at the time. 
Um, and so at that age, you know, I don't know if people think that like, oh, well, what can you do? Like CPS maybe is just for the littler guys. Um, but it was blowing my mind that Trevor was not in any system. So no one was checking on him. No one was monitoring him. Nobody knew where he was. Um, and so then, of course, too, as now I'm putting my Isaac Foundation hat on, here I am at the yeah. Isaac Foundation. And I'm constant. I don't want to say constantly, but a lot, very often, Am I pulled in or getting calls from people who have been turned into CPS for their disabled child because um, a provider or someone that um, works with that child, either as a teacher, daycare provider or whatnot, have seen marks on the child that they felt was worthy of a mandatory report. And so um, and so that kind of begged the question, you know, parents are terrified. OK, parents are so worried because um, make I don't have to tell you when we're talking about kids with disabilities. Um, they can be really hard on their body themselves. Um, yeah. Sometimes they self-harm. Um, sometimes they don't have pain receptors. Um, and so they don't feel that they're being really hard on their body. So they, you know, jump from trees, jump from couches and um, are crashing into things, um, hitting themselves, biting themselves. Um, sometimes too, May. Um, and I'm guilty of this and I'm going to tell you, since we're friends and we're not here with our professional, well, I'm a little professional, but I'm going to, I love to throw myself under the bus, but there are times with Isaac was a runner. So when he's bolting someplace and I have to like, you know, cause again, Isaac and Tyler were very close in age. So it was like having twins. Um, it was like having to make the assessment of who's in mortal danger at the time. And I'm not going to lie. I've had to reach out and grab their arm to keep them from bolting into a street or into water. Um, and then, of course, too, you know, now, in case there's a mark and you're terrified, you are absolutely afraid that if someone sees a mark on your child, you're going to get a CPS. And I'm telling you, some of the families that we've been we have interfaced, it's really it's marks on the body. So I asked you about kind of like a checklist, like from, you know, yeah. like a mandatory report perspective. Is there some magic checklist out there that like a mandatory reporter is like, oh, we got a mark. We've got this. We got this. That meets the the mandatory report. I got to call this in. And you told me when we were talking earlier. Nope. So talk about that a little bit, because that blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. So first of all, <laughs> I know I mentioned this in my my email, but um I am no way representing the department through this. No, I, uh, I'll just speak on my experience, my opinions while working for the department. And by department, I mean the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. Um, that's now, and then there's a big umbrella of that. And then it falls, you have like CPS is one category there, Child Protective Services, but just wanted to throw that out there before I really dive in. Yeah, worth <laughs> um, mentioning. So, Mandatory reporters have the obligation to report within that 24-hour period if they know or if they suspect child abuse has happened. Within that, there ought to be a checklist, right? And I imagine in a perfect world, there's a medical provider who has that checklist for themselves based upon their knowledge and experience. Um, so, like, let's look at this, and since we're talking injuries, let's look at this injury. Would it be consistent with somebody grabbing them on the arm, right? So, if we have, since you read through that example. Oh, totally. There, and you know, use me as an example. The time. Yeah, use me as an yeah. example, because that would be me. It happens all the time. Like, you have, I've had a lot of cases where it's like, 
there's a mark on a kiddo's arm and they're a young kiddo or a child with a disability. And there's a mark because they were running into traffic or I had to stop them from falling off the chair or whatever it was. Um, there ought to be that checklist of, is it consistent with what the parent is telling me? And I have a relationship with this family and let's look at the history here and the patterns of behavior that we know about this kid. Right. I mean, I feel like that part is kind of logical, but I do feel like physicians should have their own little internal checklist too. I agree because that's the thing is, is that especially when we're dealing with, you know, I, I will be honest, very often who is doing the reporting tend to be therapy providers because they spend a lot of time with their kiddos. And, you know, at yeah. times they even have to undress our kiddos because, you know, yeah. they have potty accidents, yeah. dirty clothes. That. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. Um, <laughs> the thing is that there are times where, you know, it, it seems that providers are, are taking that. And so it's interesting to me, because Meg, I'm going to throw myself under the boat, uh, under the bus again, and I'm going to use one of my personal examples because I don't feel comfortable sharing other people's CPS examples. But when Tyler was young, he's neurotypical, um, mm-hmm. but he did something so awful. Like um, I can't even, I, and I've told Tyler I will never say what it is that what transpired, but it was so significant enough that, and this was many years ago, he was in elementary school that I took a wooden spoon to his hiney because it was like, whoa, kid, like, I cannot even believe that you did this. I mean, we're talking, you know, it was pretty bad. And, um, and you're not with the wooden spoon. What, exactly. We'll talk about the wooden spoon here in a moment, Meg. Okay. So anyway, what happened was first whack, because you got two whacks. First whack landed, you know, right dead set on the hiney, on his butt. Second one, he put his hand out, which, of course, I did as a kid. You know, you put your hand out, like, ouch, that hurt. And so he had a little bruise on his arm right here. So he goes to school, and he had a great relationship with the school uh, counselor. And um, he went in there, and he was just like, yeah, my mom beat me with a wooden spoon. And she was like, oh, wow, let's talk about this. And he was like, yeah, see, and he showed her the mark, la, 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 la. And you want to know what happened? She called me on the phone and she was like, hey, Holly, you know, it's Mrs. Such and such, Um, you know, just had Tyler in here visiting with me. And he told me that, you know, he got in some trouble this weekend, la, la, la. I just wanted to touch base with you because there is a mark on his arm. And he said that you like, you know, hit him with a wooden spoon. Can you explain to me the circumstances around this? Because, you know, I think you're an amazing parent, but I just need to understand as a mandatory reporter, I need to understand kind of the circumstance, what happened. So I did tell her what happened. And she said, this is where I was going to say this, is where you feel good about this. She says, wow. Oh yeah. He definitely deserved getting into trouble. Next time use your hand. Don't use the spoon, open hand, tiny, like, you know, cause that's definitely, whoa. Um, and so I was kind of like, okay, fantastic. But we had a good conversation about it um, because she did have a relationship with me. So here's my next question to you. Mandatory reporters are allowed to talk to the family before they make that call, correct? Why, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take us a little deeper, right? So one, how scary it is oh. to have CPS threatened to oh, a parent. Um, and how scary is it to have CPS show up at your door? And okay. I just want to normalize that, right? Um, and we'll touch on that too after we're done with this. So that's an amazing counselor, number one, because I 
wish there were more counselors or more mandatory reporters who actually took time to have the conversation with the family before reporting, specifically for incidents like that. You know, um, that has happened too many times where I'm like, why couldn't you have asked the family what happened? Or why didn't you ask the child what happened? (laughs) Like, even that being said, just a little mark, like, oh, Johnny or Sally, what happened? What happened before making the call? Yeah. Because who knows? Maybe they were playing with brother and sister or, you know, and something happened. And some people are a little, uh, lack of a better word, trigger happy when it comes to stuff like that. I think people are worried about confrontation. You know, people are so afraid of just like, you know, I call them direct conversations, you know, and they don't have to get nasty. But it's one of those things where... You know, if more time would just if more if more mandatory reporters would just if you're going to make that call, then you, you at least owe that family, especially if you have a relationship with them, a conversation yeah. in terms of like, yeah. hey, you know, d- sorry, you know, I am a mandatory reporter. And so I just wanted to touch base because I saw this or in this yeah. case, Tyler went in for his little session with her and was just like, and my mom, she's the biggest meanie in the whole world. Um, and it's yeah. funny because when she was talking with him, she says, interesting, he never mentioned what he did, just that his mom beat him with a wingspan. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yes. you know, but, but that brings up my next point, too, about rapport, because if you have that relationship, but then you're like, I'm going to make the call without having the conversation, unless it's serious, right? Yeah. Very serious, right? Unless it's serious, you lose your rapport with your clients, oh, too. Yeah. Um, and then there's the whole distrust that starts and then that goes down a rabbit hole from there. And then we show up and they're like, oh, oh get out of my house. Okay. <laughs> you know? And then we have to build the rapport up again. And yeah. And yeah. that's the thing too, is Meg, you're a delight. You're one of my most favorite people in this whole world. I love oh, you to death. But that's the thing I can only imagine because, you know, when I first, all those years ago, I mean, actually, to be honest with you, you worked for me for a short time too at the Isaac Foundation. <laughs> Um, so you know that I absolutely love you, but when you told me that you were going to go work in CPS all those years ago, I was just like, Meg, are you kidding? Like people are going to hate right. you, but you're so nice. And in my mind, I'm like, <laughs> you're so nice. Um, but part of that is, is that you are so ethical and you love kids and people and you want to make a difference. So again, <laughs> our families, our people that are listening, our families that are listening, understand yeah. that people that were, are working in CPS, Child Protective Services or Youth Services, Child and Youth Services now, it always throws me off now because you get the whole kind of umbrella name change, but yeah. um, you guys oh, yeah. are doing your jobs um, and you're no. not coming out there with a with the idea that, oh, I'm going to find something so I can take this kiddo away. But there are those workers and that's the hard part. There are those workers. Yeah. Oh, there uh, are. And I call it those workers who are on a witch hunt because, uh, you know, those they have the gut feeling and gut feelings are huge. I will say that. But gut feelings on my end are based upon what I know in my experience and education. Oh, there yeah. are those who have the gut feelings um, on the front line who are looking for anything, um, which sucks. Yeah. It totally sucks for parents and especially parents with disabilities because they're looking to see 
if a parent is fit or unfit to care for any child. Um, so that part does suck, but then you do have workers. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I do take pride in my rapport building skills because it's really important and it's really a working relationship. So when we have a report that's made, right? Do you want me to go through yeah, the process? That was my next thing. Yeah, let's okay. go through what a report looks like. Let's do it. Well, let's dive in. So when a report is made, right? Best practice one. Ah, I'm going to back up. Beep, beep. Okay. okay. When a report comes in, it can either go a few ways. So it can screen in or screen out. If it screens in, it can either go to investigations or it can go to family assessment response. And, um, and can you I think tell me what family way, assessment response is? Can you tell us yeah, what that is? Of course. Um, but I do think, I will say, I think each region is different okay. um, as far as if their employees are cross-trained oh, or gosh. if they're separate units, okay. right? So it started out as separate units, but in my area, we merged it. Hey, let's all be cross-trained in both investigations and family assessment response. We call family assessment response FAR. So family assessment, well, I'm going to start with investigations because that's the shorter route. Okay, sure. Investigations are usually, usually moderate to high risk um, investigations. So we need immediate attention. So they're typically 24-hour response, but we do get 72-hour responses too, meaning the department has 24 hours or 72 hours to see this kiddo, and that's the priority. The other way in family assessment response, these are 72-hour response time intakes. They're usually low to moderate severity in risk. And when I talk about risk, um, it's the, well, okay. When I talk about risk, that's um, what is the severity here, right? What happened and how severe is it? Um, and then what are the, What's the criteria involved? Do they have a chronicity factor, meaning they have a lot of history with the department, which that is something for people to keep in mind. I was going to ask that later on about and, history. What happens yep. if it's like a thing where you, you're having this issue over and go, we can talk about that in a minute. Um, yes. So yep. let's finish along right. this line. Yes. So in FAR, there's that 72-hour response time. Best practice um, in policy is for the assigned worker to reach out to the family before they see the kiddo. And typically what that looks like is, hey, I'm calling from Child Protective Services, got an intake that screamed into family um, assessment response, just letting you know I need to see your kiddo. And right now it's like planning to see the kiddo, right? Because we're um, in the middle of COVID during still. The school year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. During the school year, it could just be like a voicemail from the far worker saying, I'm going to go to your school and see your kiddo. Oh my gosh. And that lights some fire sometimes. Oh, but believe me, sometimes I've gotten, gotten those too. calls again. I've gotten those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but sometimes, I mean... Personally, I liked the FAR approach because I feel like from the get-go, you're building the rapport by saying, hey, I'm going to go see your kiddo or I'm going to come see out, see your kiddo. 
one, you can schedule with them. That gives them the opportunity to like clean their home, those kind of things. And those things for me show that they're capable of that. Right. Um, But two, um, it builds the rapport and it, I don't know, for me, it's like, okay, now this person might trust me because I'm trying to plan and coordinate with them. Yeah. You gave them a heads up and a heads up is huge in my mind. Cause if I know it's coming, I can get, go through that anger phase, the crying phase, the, okay, now I got to get my ducks in a row phase before you show up up at my house. Right. Okay. So I value that too. Yeah. Or it's like investigations. I get it. Investigations are a little more severe typically. So showing up unannounced like that is sometimes key. Um, And then people don't have time to think of stories. Yeah. Right. So family assessment response, it's completely, it's voluntary um, with, and this is, side opinion voluntary to the degree where if you decide to decline participating it escalates the my level at least it escalates my level of concern um because even just keeping your kiddo from seeing the department right or vice versa um it's a red flag want me to see your kid like we can work on this together to get it closed out and you're choosing not to so that's kind of a concern yeah um but yeah so the voluntary services I mean if applicable I think FAR is a great program because there are so many services and providers who we contract with who can actually better family dynamics mm-hmm. I will say on the disability level um it can get tricky Um, Because you have specific providers. And what if those providers or services aren't offered in your area? Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's on the parent's plate, right? And a lot of that with kids with disability is on the parent's plate when we're offering all these services. But it's more of a um, generalized service. Granted, they're evidence-based. I think they're great. But when kids have those specialized needs, how can we generally meet that? Yeah. Right. And, and I will then tell you, look at- I have had a family and we're going to talk to them in our second part of this, um, where we actually talk to parents about some of their experiences, but they must've been in that family assessment response because they came out, they were talking to the family, kind of checking the dynamic. This is a child with a, you know, profound, profoundly affected And, um, they're offering, well, okay, well, maybe we should try this. Yep. Okay. Well, this is, yes, we've already done that. And here's what we've also done in response to that, to that. And then they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, well, okay. Then these ones aren't going to work. Okay. Well, what about this, that, and the other? And it's like, well, this, we've already done that. Here's what we've done. And at the end, this wonderful social worker was just like, wow, I don't know what, like you're doing everything you possibly can. I'm guessing they went family preservation service route. Okay. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, but they cooperated, they participated because they're like, you know what? I hate to say this, but you almost get desensitized to it. It's like, here we go again. And so now we're going to show you everything that we've done. So yeah. And that's, Department making their efforts. Yeah, and you have to. And but there is a limit to what the department can do to help us. I mean, that's really like what you're saying. They're not geared toward children or individuals with disabilities, um, mm-hmm. and they're not always available to us over here, which makes it challenging. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there are. I mean, 
thinking back, there are specialized programs, but is it going to be tailored for exactly what that kid needs? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So investigation is a little bit more dicey. We're showing up unannounced. Yes. And typically, I mean, with seeing a kiddo, they are supposed to be unannounced. Um, But in FAR, we give, I guess, the courtesy (laughs) of calling beforehand. And then um, with the FAR process, like somebody can drop out at any point and then the department reevaluates that, like saying, okay, yeah, that was, it's fine. The provider saying um, it's okay for you to drop out of services. They really have nothing else to offer you. Everything seems to be going well. Or, oh gosh, they're dropping out because they're falling off the face of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then in investigations, we're showing up unannounced, which does um, add that extra tool set to be an investigator because then you're really building, you're kind of backtracking to build the rapport with families. Like, yes, I saw your kid. Yes, I saw your bruise. Here's what I think. Let's talk about services. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can only imagine. I think I would much prefer as like a social worker to be in that um, family assessment response category. It seems like a way less explosive yeah, situation. It's less intensive yeah. or invasive too um, for families. I think less invasive. Yeah, We're still going to try and gather information from a lot of different collaterals, right? Um, like medical so law that, enforcement. Talk about that a little bit. So then once a kid falls into the system and either they go the family assessment response or they go an investigation, do you automatically request the child's medical records? I think it's smart too. Okay. Uh, it's smart too, but I mean, I don't think everybody does that. Okay. Well, and I say that too, because sometimes I think for our families who have kiddos with disabilities, I actually think that that would be a really helpful tool because when I have a kiddo who's very, that does not have the normal pain receptors of a neurotypical person. um, So they don't feel pain. So they're going to push that envelope of safety and they're harder on their body. So you're going to see more bruises. I feel like it's really important to have this very frank conversation preemptively before CPS or anyone mandatorily could report anything, go to your primary health care provider, your pediatrician, whoever is seeing your child and have that conversation. So it's documented in their medical records somewhere by a physician that this child has this profile, because then if CPS was to become involved, you can, as a parent insist, I really insist that you request my child's medical records because you will see this is my child's profile. I mean, do you feel like that would be beneficial? And on the reciprocating end as a worker, that's amazing. And I have had parents even get me the records and send me the medical records or let me access their child's medical records online. Okay. It's that on my is, phone. Literally. I can just pull yeah. my chart. Literally. <laughs> so medical records are at yeah. my fingertips at this point. And so literally I would be able to be able to manage. I could pull that record up with you standing in my living room. Thanks to my chart now. Um, but yeah. so that would be one suggestion that we would both have for families. Correct. Is that if that That's is your child's profile, also, too, if your child is a wanderer they or they bolt from you, um, making sure that that's also noted in some of the, the records. Because, again, then when you have maybe a mark on the wrist or something like that, you can say this kid is a documented runner. 
And mm-hmm. so it's really difficult. You know, we try and keep leashes on them. Um, you know, I just, it, people are so <laughs> controversial about those harnesses, but I'm telling you what, as a CPS worker, how do you feel about that? Leashes? Yeah, the leashes. Like the backpack ones? The backpack ones. Is that? Can One, they, I think they're adorable. They are cute. But, <laughs> but two, as long as it's not harming a child, I mean, you think you, we put them on our animals and they don't harm our animals, but like, um, Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Children, I mean, we're different, completely different than animals. Yes, not comparing absolutely. Animals but they're intended as a tool to keep but them if safe. Helps, yeah. If it helps, absolutely. And actually, we've had um, some therapy providers who we work with recommend that for kiddos. Right? And it just, I don't, as long as it's not harming the child and it's not a restraining device. Okay. Yes, they're, yeah. they're not yeah. intended to be a restraining device where you then tie them to a tree. Yes. That would be the yes. difference. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you're out in yeah. public or you're going, you know, or you're shopping or you're in a parking lot, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It is really yeah. beneficial. We, I have to be honest with you for the long, you know, even though Isaac could walk and, um, you know, he passed away right before his fourth birthday, I always had to have him in a car seat and people would be like, you know, you should try letting those kids walk. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't live my life. So just like keep your opinions <laughs> to yourself, sir. I would literally use my, my double stroller as a shopping cart because I, that was the only way yeah. I could keep them contained. Yeah, you do you. So much unsolicited advice in this world, Meg. I'm just telling you. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so the key is participation. I've had so many people tell me not to be a CPS worker. Uh, Oh, right. I'm say that again. I'm sorry. Here's the thing. I got off my tangent. I was one of those people where I'm like, Meg, are you really sure you want to do? I was one of those people. I'm so glad that you joined the cause. Thank you. Well, that and like, I do think there's a huge stigma against child protective services. And um, I mean, you know, I joined specifically to try and better that stigma um, based upon my experience with a parent who came from the system. And uh, that's going to make me a little emotional, but (laughs) um, there's the stigma out there. And it's because there are those workers who again, are on that witch hunt and don't make it fun for anybody involved. And it's not supposed to be fun, but you shouldn't come out feeling like you're not a human, like you're not respected. You weren't heard. Um, Granted, I will clutch that with, there are those specific cases where you just can't be a nice human anymore. (laughs) There are those specific cases where the line is crossed and you're like, all right, I got to be objective now. Well, and I agree because again, I have Trevor. So wouldn't it have been nice in his life (laughs) that he had a good caseworker that would have like taken care of him because yeah, so I'm with you. I get both ends of it. Very, very grateful for the CPS system. Wish Trevor had, had been kind of into that longer um, but yeah. yeah, I also have experienced, I understand the fear of our, our families just because this is, again, it's a bit of a problem. So mm-hmm. if a family participates, if a family participates, then that actually is really helpful. That really shows um, whether there was, there was evidence, warranted evidence or not, participation yeah. is really helpful. So even if you did maybe lose your marbles. Yeah. You know, even if you did lose your marbles and you probably grabbed that kid when you shouldn't have, and yeah, there was a legitimate mark because I was like mad at the time and I just jerked him in, you know, CPS, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your child. You're going to be offered programs. You're going to be offered counseling and, and, and training and education so that 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, hey, if you cross that line, you're going to lose your child um, because there is a restorative element of the child protective services. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to say yes, because it's not always like a black or white thing. And especially, again, I'm going to toot the horn for far because one, if parents are like you lose your marbles, like you're saying once and being open and honest and receptive to guidance and assistance on better techniques and tools. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you, you go through the process and um, investigations and in FAR are up to a 90 day process. Sometimes FAR can go longer, like into the 120 day level. Um, if there are maybe ongoing concerns or maybe the service um, that the family and the department agreed upon, maybe that needs a few extra days or didn't start on time or whatever. So that being said, it's a process. It's an ongoing process. Um, but the more open, receptive people are, the less concern we typically have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> I hear you. Now, let's go to because we had a family who had um, marks on their child's thigh and um, the therapy provider was the one that reported it. Um, the family complied. They must have been in the investigation category because it was a spontaneous knock on the door on a Saturday. Um, Ooh, after hours. Yeah. Um, someone was getting some overtime that day. Um, so, you know, they produced the child and then... Um, they ended up, you know, and that was kind of that touchy thing where they recommended and asked that they take their daughter to this special physician to have the marks reviewed to get kind of that like a, you know, can you, you know, to look at the bruises and then make a determination whether or not it was related to the fact that this little girl doesn't have those pain receptors. And so she's just very naturally hard on her body. Um, so that the process of that was is that they, you know, they had to unclothe her and then the, the physician was, you know, examining the bruises. Um, and, um, you know, in the end, the physician didn't have, they said that, you know, what you're ex- describing makes sense to me and having interacted with your child makes sense. And so that report then goes to the caseworker. Um, yeah. And I believe um, everything is, is really resolved. Um, and so that is, and again, they were, they, the family told me, you know, part of us is like, I'm not going to take my child down there and have you take her clothes off to then take pictures and poke and prod right. her. Um, because yeah. it seems like an invasion of privacy, but yet what they pointed out, if we don't, we look guilty. And so what is the right answer? And they decided the right answer is to take her down there you know, get her down to her skivvy so they can see the marks and get that report done. And things were resolved pretty quickly. Um, it does put that trauma on the child. It does. And um, what, I mean, it, what behavior is that encouraging? Yeah. Like somebody says, I should take my clothes off. I'm going to do it. So that um, kind of goes into this but whole. But that being said, she had the support of her parents there, I'm assuming. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the thing is, you know, the not like that, sure, doctor, yeah. take the clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 100% there. One of the things that was a little bit um, surprising to me, um, and I think you might, I think you told me that this is actually something you've actually heard of, um, but one of the provider that was the one that made the mandatory report 
that suggested Mm -hmm. once this was all resolved and the fact that they kind of acknowledge the fact that she tends to be hard on her body because she doesn't have those pain receptors, the therapy provider was saying, well, maybe in the future, instead of us having to make this report every time we see marks, again, I think that's preposterous because, again, if you're having conversations about a new mark, we wouldn't have to then go that route. But the suggestion was that um, they, you know, take her clothes off, photograph, document it, and then have a conversation about it so that they're documenting it. This mandatory reporter is then documenting the marks so that they can feel comfortable that it's resolved and it, it you know, matches. Now, I was appalled by that. I have to be honest. And the family was too, because again, what are we setting this child up for? We are teaching, this is a child with a disability. While she might chronologically be older, she only functions at maybe a two-year-old level. So now what are we then reinforcing to her is, is that, you know, got to take her clothes off. It's okay to take her clothes off and then take pictures of her. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. And so you said that you've heard of some of that in the past, but, and that's a difficult Mm -hmm. thing, right? Because you want to protect the child. But in this case, I was like, that is the worst possible idea in the world because for her, she has a disability. When you, you know, start making a neural pathway that basically says that I have to accept this, my clothes being taken off and people photographing me. I think that's dangerous. Yeah. And, um, I do, I agree with you. Um, on my side, I can see both ends mm-hmm. because, um, the provider's trying to protect the family. Number one, I think mm-hmm. trying to protect the family from making further referrals. Um, but then on your side, we're teaching like a learned behavior that it's okay Yeah, to do what right the documentation stripping the clothes um and so there are there are those two sides but i have to wonder if there's a better solution um even like written documentation so that was gonna be my next question do you have to have photographs or can we say you know that okay there was a bruise on the rib cage on the right side you know and you know the size of like a quarter and parent reports that she was on the monkey bar so they were holding her you know what i mean whatever is that what that means it is I mean, it is encouraged um, because it's further evidence and documentation um, to support a finding of a case. And one thing I didn't mention earlier was findings, like the outcomes oh, yes. of cases. Oh, yes. talk about that. Important. Yeah. So um, investigations, you get findings in FAR. If it continues the route of FAR at the end, it's just open close. Right. So findings and investigations can be um, founded, unfounded, or you just uh, or inconclusive, which rarely inconclusive rarely happens, uh, at least in my experience. Right. Um, So founded means it did happen. It's substantiated. There's evidence to prove um, that something likely did happen. Obviously, unfounded is unsubstantiated, meaning something did not happen based upon the evidence gathered and then inconclusive is that middle area where it's like something might have happened but we don't have the evidence to support it or enough information um so there's that and then far is like you completed far good job gold star yes check the (laughs) box and you move on so let's talk about history so now let's move into history yeah yeah so with that being said um History, I mean, far, whether you have far or in investigations, we we can see the history, but only we can see the history. So say somebody three months before I get the intake, 
or got the intake, <laughs> speaking past tense here, um, three months before I got the intake, they completed FAR. Okay, what services did they do? Did they do services? All of that we take into account um, when a new case comes in, or I hope that's best practice, understanding that most state workers overworked, underbid, la, la, la. So, boxes get missed. Um, am, I say, am I hearing that sometimes boxes and steps get missed? Sometimes, but yeah. that's why we have supervisors and quality practice workers who reassure that we are making sure, or who reassure the boxes are getting checked and we're going through the correct process. Um, and then we have our annual reviews too. So, um, but yeah, with, I lost track there, history. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see you finish those programs and that goes into some of your, like, you know, how you're following up then on a second report. Yeah. Yeah. So on a second report, if it comes in, um, there's a lot of factors like, okay, do we need to do the therapy services again? Or if three FARs come in within a year or three um, investigations, that's going to heighten the risk, um, the safety risk to the child. Um, and if there are more than three FAR, or FAR assessments, it's going to jump to an investigation automatically. Okay. And that's something that people should probably be aware of within that. And if somebody has a founded finding, whether it was 20 years ago or sexual abuse or whatever, we're definitely going to look at that. Sure. So if there yeah. an investigation, if there was a founded, you know, like report in the yeah. history, even though it might be three, four or five years, um, it's definitely going to automatically warrant more of a uh, emergent, investigation then moving forward that's just something we're going to take the department would take into consideration and when we write up our dispositions at when we're wrapping up cases right when we're writing the dispositions to wrap up the case we do have to list the history that's a part of the assessment okay i have my next question for you Yeah. We talked about this because we were talking about mandatory reporting and, you know, you wish that there was a better, cleaner kind of checklist system that really kind of dials into some of the things that these mandatory reporters should be looking for. But mm-hmm. is, is there a situation where let's say you have, do you ever see, okay, we have gotten like 27 mandatory reports from this one person, whether a daycare provider or a therapy. And can you guys see a history? Can you see a history of that where you're like, wow, maybe we need to, and most of those then end up being unfounded. Um, Yeah. Is it something that you It's called false reporting. It's called false (laughs) reporting. Okay. So like, but Uh, it's a daycare center or is, you know, cause I feel like that they're talking about, I mean, I'm sure that there are family situations cause you know, not all, you know, relationships are, you know, amicable. So I could see that kind of in the families reporting families things, but when it comes to like a clinician or a daycare provider um, and you're seeing kind of a, an abundance of reports, but they're all unfounded. Um, is there something where that kind of triggers in an internal system of like, hey, maybe we need to interface with this provider um, or, you know, clinician just to make sure that they understand kind of the, 
you know, if, you know, we could save a lot of time because it's resources for you guys. I can only imagine, you know, you don't want to spend time on stuff where it's kind of like, wow, really? Uh, come on, tell me you, sometimes you're out there and you're probably like, wow, really? Uh, but you know, you're, you know, but you do, you're doing your job. You got to protect the kids. But um, is there an opportunity for you guys to then interface with the provider or a clinician and be like, hey, we just kind of wanted to, you know, explain what mandatory reporting is and kind of a, how does that work? I feel like that falls under the social workers' ethics. Ethics. Um, Their personal ethics. I know myself, I would visit that conversation with the provider and have the opportunity for education. Um, But I feel like one, that's something we would take into account, right? Like, is this the same reporter every time? And let's look at what they're reporting and what we've found in our assessments and investigations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But at what point do we have the conversation of Stop calling! <laughs> yes, because like, again, I, I, which I'm just kind of like saying that to people. <laughs> I know, I know, and that's what's hard is everybody. I mean, I, I understand this, like, because again, I live in this, I live in this world where it's like, you know, like I want you to take and make these children safe, but on the other hand, too, sometimes it's a lack of understanding of what yeah. it is that we're really looking for. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I think a conversation between, if it comes to that, a conversation between the worker and the person reporting, very appropriate, very ethical, um, because again, it's an opportunity for education and understanding. Yeah. Um, But then there are those cases, you know, like you have an ex-spouse or an ex-partner, right? who's continuing to make false reports and it does get, I've had a few cases that go to the false reporting level. And just so people know, it's a gross misdemeanor. Oh, <laughs> that's right. If it's a serious um, report that is completely false, we can refer to law enforcement and they can pursue charges. That is actually good to know, because like I said, I know that there is a lot of that that goes on because people are unhappy with custody orders and different things like that. So that's worth noting here, too, because we do have some of those families that are getting the reports because of extended family um, or other, you know, that, you know, other parent because they don't agree with like the therapy interventions and different things like that. So that's good to know if is does CBS then have to initiate the hey we think these are false reports you need to stop or can like a parent that's constantly being like turned in because of an angsty like extended mother-in-law or ex can uh can I then file a a uh false reporting harassment harassment? Yeah. yeah I mean I would encourage people to do that I don't know if um I don't know if law enforcement would take it on so easily. Yeah, but so mostly if it's initiated it. by CPS, then it would be followed up on. It would likely, yeah. And there is, oh, I should have um, 
was thinking of that last night too, and I should have. There is a form that we send out at the end of the assessment or investigation if we do believe it's false reporting. We do send the reporter a letter um, with the RCW of false reporting and what that looks like. We do send that to the reporter. Oh, well, that's And then in big bold letters. Yeah, and in big bold letters at the end of our dispositions, this is believed to be false reporting based upon these uh, facts that we've identified. Gotcha. I have a weird random question for you. Okay. Have you ever <laughs> heard of a report made by a provider that the, the mandatory report was being made because they didn't feel like the parent was honoring the child's voice because the child has a disability and you know the child may not have a lot of like language, but didn't feel like the parent was honoring the child's voice? Um, have you heard of something like that? Was it like neglect? No, sort of neglect. not neglect, just that she, I guess, didn't like some of the social interactions between parent and child, you know, when the child's being resistant to complying and the fact that the parent wasn't honoring. I mean, I have to be honest, that's like every day of my life with my children because are they ever, like, I'm sorry, but I cannot honor your voice today because I'm telling you to clean your bedroom. You know what I'm saying? But I thought that that was- I'm thinking you're wondering what would warrant a report of, yeah. because of a difference in a so you wouldn't think that that that's not a normal report then i can't i mean i would see if it has caused neglect to the child progressing hmm. uh, or any like a form of neglect if they're able to say because the parent isn't honoring the child's voice it has um impacted this part of their life okay I just right. thought it was such a peculiar thing. I didn't know when I heard of this. I was kind of like, I don't really understand how that falls into like abuse or neglect. Um, yeah. So then I thought maybe there was something I didn't understand. Yeah. Well, like I would need a my dog wants outside. Um, I would need a better understanding of like what part of that child's life was impacted because of that. Gotcha. So Meg, just to summarize, we were just talking, we talked about a lot in this particular podcast. I think it's very informative. I think this is going to help a lot. Um, but just to summarize, kind of, if you are a family that is being, that has been reported, your best options are, as I suggested, working with your medical provider to make sure there's documentation, right? Um, you yeah. mentioned participation, go work with the CPS. Um, because again, they're human beings. I mean, there are those that are on a witch hunt, but by and large, I would like to believe that, um, their hearts in the right place and they really are trying to be an advocate for you and your child. Um, so participation okay. in the process, you know, make yeah. your child available. If they ask you to take your child to this person, have the marks reviewed, do it right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know it feels violating. It is hard Um, Mm -hmm. to go finish the programs or whatever service, the checklist system that they're wanting to provide you so that it's closed and it's resolved. Um, And then um, beyond that, um, there, there was, we had a, Lieutenant Coles participate in a podcast a few weeks ago and the, and the topic was wandering and eloping. And so one of the things I, cause again, I know parents are so afraid of CPS. I asked him the question, do you automatically report families when you have an issue of a child that's like wandered away from home? And he says that, you know, to be honest with you, 
you know, they're mandatory reporters. My husband is a firefighter. He is a mandatory reporter. Um, But, you know, Matt says when they refer to CPS by and large in situations like this, they will do it because they know that CPS has resources for the family. It's not that they feel like there's abuse or necessarily neglect. Sometimes from a law enforcement perspective, this family doesn't have the funds for locks on the doors and windows or you know, a GPS tracking. Um, and so he says that if we ever, you know, not to say that, you know, there are times where it's like, oh, this is definitely neglect. Um, but yeah. he says a lot of times we will make a report to CPS because that opens up the door for some support when it comes to getting some of those physical resources like locks. So can you talk about what those resources might be and kind of the limitations there? And honestly, I love that. <laughs> I love that they use this as a resource because I think that a lot of people think we're not a resource and that's ultimately what like FAR is designed for is to be a preventative resource. So um, there are like $200 available in vouchers, right? And often the department will jump to like the locks, the door alarms, um, especially if we have wanderers, uh, chronic wanderers. That's what I'm going to call them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We call them adventurers, chronic adventurers. Yeah, <laughs> um, like this opportunist. Um, yeah, to put on the doors, put on the windows so that we know when a child is exiting the home, right? But I get it, like you're outside sometimes and bam, there they go. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, in that sense, I'll say there are those $200 lots um, of resources and it does have to get approved. Um, so the department really has to describe the need for the good, I'll say the concrete good. Um, and oftentimes in offices, they have locks and alarms on hand in the concrete good area, which is nice. Yeah. Um, so we have the service providers who support that, which is nice. Um, but something like a GPS finder or anything like that, um, that would probably need special approval, but it's definitely something to suggest. Okay. Say, hey, we've talked about getting a GPS finder. And I'm just using this one specifically, yeah. but we talked about getting a GPS finder, but we don't have access to funds that allow for that. Any chance we could compromise and meet in the middle or even giving a voucher? It'd probably be a voucher to a place like Walmart or a department store who, where you find that GPS tracker, mm-hmm. like you help us out with financially affording it. And that way um, the department can issue a voucher for at least partial payment. If it's more than that $200 allotment, you know, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully make it more affordable for the family. I just had another question pop in my head while you were talking. So, oh, you asked. Okay. I mean, if I have you here, I have to just maximize our time together. Another fear that our families have is is that we oftentimes, because our kiddos wander and elope, we do use locks and and to keep them locked even in their bedroom at night because, like, I have to be able to sleep. And I can't sleep if I know there's a possibility that they're going to get out of their bedroom or they're going to get out of their, you know, um, out the window. And so we have complex, you know, like, you know, um, locks on doors and windows. And that makes some parents uncomfortable. They, they have wanderers, but they are afraid to use those things because they're worried that should a provider come into the home and see that they're going to think that, oh, this child is being like locked, you know, against their will. 
Absolutely. There actually was, this is a media case, so I'm allowed to share. Um, the caged kid case is what the media portrayed it as, and they were autistic children or children with autism. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is something that is a general concern. I mean, I, if I walked into a home, in all honesty, if I walked into a home and saw what I believed to be like a locked, uh, lack of better word, cage, yes. my awareness would be heightened. Yeah. But what about bedrooms? <laughs> but then you ask questions, right? Yeah. But, and you're absolutely like a cage or like a cubby underneath a set of stairs, appalling. But if bedroom, doesn't know. Yes. But for like a bedroom, would that be something that as parents, we should be more concerned about having locks on their bedroom doors to make sure that they can't get out in the night? Because, you know, I have kids that, I'm, well, I mean, I'm going to be honest. Um, we're lucky. John son Cooper, he doesn't try and operate a toaster oven or a microwave. He'll just take yeah. the frozen pizza out of the freezer and eat it frozen. So like, we're lucky in that regard, not healthy, not the best option. Um, you know, we lock the kitchen is, you know, we've had to lock the fridge, but we have the ability to lock our kitchen. But again, thank God he doesn't have that, that concept of like, no, nope, got to heat this up because he would, I mean, I don't even know. I, I, yeah. I, I frightened to think what the, what the aftermath of that would look like. Yeah. Um, same thing with Caleb too. You know, he has tried to be some self-sufficient and, you know, like the toaster oven and him are not friends because he burns things in there. Fortunately there, it shuts itself off and dings, but um, yeah. so again, we do these things to try and keep them safe. But then, okay. like I said, some families are kind of become, they have become prisoners in their own home because they can't sleep. They can't, mm -hmm. you know, like really even relax because they're on heightened awareness all the time because they yeah. are afraid of using locks um, in order to keep them in their room safely in their room. Um, and then it, what's in their room, right? I've walked into rooms where it's just a mattress and white walls. I know. So how do you, because again, I live in a world where I see the severity of what we're dealing with. I mean, you know, destruction and just ripping the sheetrock off of walls and the lengths that we have to go to in order to keep them safe. Yeah. Um, you know, so where does the CPS kind of fall in some of these things? You take into consideration some of these factors in terms of, you know, they're destructive, they're known wanderers. Does that factor in? I think when we're talking about that specifically, like if we're locking kids in their room because they're wanderers, hopefully let's go back to the conversation about having conversations with our providers and all of that. Hopefully that conversation has happened so that the department can contact that collateral source and say that this was talked about and discussed and um, came out to be the best option for this kiddo. Okay. So I'm hearing what you're saying is, is that if you get to the point where in order to keep that child safe, you must put locks on doors and windows at from yeah. like 9 PM or 10 PM until like, you know, 7 AM really yeah. the best option is to make sure that that's then documented with your provider. So then that way we can say, Hey, I talked to my provider and they felt like this is by far the best way of keeping our child safe because of these factors. Yeah. And for me, that's like a CYA thing. Yeah. Like, and if we're questioning, if that's an okay thing, we need to make sure probably that there's something to back it up. Sure. Like there was a reason this needed to happen and that's why this happened. And just out of curiosity, is there like special training that you've done, Meg, on um, how to evaluate 
situations that involved children with disability or young people with disabilities? Education. (laughs) Um, I will say I would encourage the department to uh, come up with more trainings that cater more toward um, kiddos with disability. So you don't automatically get it. So you guys kind of learn it just through kind of the... Right. We go through... um, Oh, gosh, I'm thinking of my current position, what training that was called. We go through our extensive upfront training, and it's very intense upfront, um, on-the-spot training, right, when we're first hired on. We go through disability, but does anybody fully absorb everything on top of everything else they're learning? Probably not, unless they've either had the experience or it's their educational background, um, or anything like that. I totally and, agree. I'm an autism mom and have been an autism mom for, let's see, well, Isaac would be 17. So like, you know, yeah. 15 and a half years. And there are still, I'm still learning. I'm still honing yeah. my skills. Evolving stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. I see different things every day. I mean, and I have the benefit of working with hundreds of families, with hundreds of kids, yeah. with different profiles, but I'm yeah. still always learning. Um, yeah. But that's kind of interesting because, you know, I will say CPS here in our neck of the woods have actually referred parents to Isaac Foundation for Parent Training. So we have what we call the crash course to understanding autism and then also the awesome. roadmap. We call it the um, guided roadmap. And so we yeah. can CPS actually pay um, the registration fee for Wonderful. parents to take it because they are just saying, hey, you know, and the mom was very honest. I don't have the skills. Um, I don't understand what I'm dealing with. So I don't know how to parent this child. Yeah. And so I was like, that's fantastic. And so, um, but you know, they paid for the registration. She, you know, the mom got online, found it, then took it to the caseworker and the caseworker was like, this is amazing. Um, and so we have that, um, yeah. And so that was something that was a normal thing for the department to have, you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe we should probably work on that. I know you do wonderful trainings. If there was a training that the department could have um, and contract with, that would be so supportive. Yeah, and maybe that's something we should have. I think across the board, like frontline workers across the board, I think that would be really helpful. Before COVID, we were doing a lot of community partner trainings, which was places like Mobia Science Center. We were set up to go in and train the staff at Mobia Science Center. They have kids with disabilities or that are differently abled coming into the Science Center or the Kids Mm -hmm. Museum and they wanted their staff to have extra training. So we've trained school nurseries, school um, church nurseries, church um, youth group people. So, you know, there are a lot of different community partners that have reached out and we've done training. Um, But that's an opportunity I should probably investigate a little bit more. It's interesting that people who whose jobs are not to protect children are getting these trainings. I know. Just a, know. Ugh, Just a little bit. Advocate I know. <laughs> we should be offering it. So let's see. Um, we talked about what best to do should you have it. We talked about the vouchers. We kind of talked about some of these things, these fear things. Really, um, Meg, you had said, you know, you're just such 
a wonderful person just because you have the biggest heart of, of, you know, anyone I know. And you had said that, you know, if parents have specific questions, um, the nice thing about you is, is that, you know, again, you're, you're not in our area. And so I appreciate that you're taking time on your day off to record this, but, um, you know, like just knowing who you can call and ask a question to, because you, it's hard when you're talking to your caseworker to really dive into the, what kind of training do you have? And la 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 la, <laughs> which is why we you want can to ask them that though. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. And then they're going to be like, parent pestered me about my One, I guess I have so many questions, but here's my question is, is that I feel like parents don't want to, they're ashamed. There's a lot of shame wrapped around, oh my gosh, I just got uh, turned into CPS. I like to throw my shit show out there for the world to just understand (laughs) that people I've been there. Like, you know what I'm saying? Cause like, I'm not a perfect, I'm not a perfect person. You know, I've made mistakes. Nobody is, you know? So yeah, I'm just throwing my, I'm throwing my shit show out. I, that's the beautiful thing about this podcast is I can throw my shit show right out there. But do you, I, I wish that, and I hope when parents hear this as a call to action, um, talk, it be more open about it because a lot of times people don't yeah. want to tell anybody or share, Oh my gosh, I just got turned into CPS because there's that yeah. shame element. However, I feel like, um, because they're like, you know, situations where providers are the ones that are turning the families in, you know, it, it maybe there is some power in numbers to say, Hey, you know, maybe parents that have had this interaction where, you know, we have kiddos that are heavy, are hard on their body, um, don't have those, you know, pain receptors so that it, their brain tells them like, hey, like, don't do that anymore. Um, that maybe we should be, you know, banding together as a group and saying, hey, CPS and state, um, here's a collective voice of like, we're parents and we have children with disabilities and we're really frustrated because mandatory reporters based off of like this vague, rather vague um, outline of what mandatory reporting should be, you know, we're being unduly, um, you know, reported um, when we're just doing the best that we can. Do you think there's any value or even just parents being open about, Hey, here was my experience. Here's what you can expect. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of shame of like, you know, not people not wanting to talk about it. Expected. I mean, we're putting it's being vulnerable, putting yourself out there. So it would only be expected. There's the shame involved, but vulnerability creates growth, right? Absolutely. Internally, externally, and all of that. And I will say, um, we were talking on the line of all that training and stuff maybe reaching out and they're hard people to get a hold of, but if you are able to reach out to the area administrators of the DCYF office in Spokane to have that conversation, I really think it'd be beneficial. And who knows, maybe it would spark a statewide conversation. Um, I'm definitely an advocate for that because it is a scary process. And having the is uncomfortable but important yeah well and I even feel like um like some of these clinicians are like oh I'm a mandatory reporter and it's really stressful so having better for these you know providers to have a better like kind of cri- checklist or criteria for the step one you know like so that there's a little clearer um you know, process of kind of evaluating, like, you know, have you checked their records or do you, have you assessed the child and know that they have low pain for, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's yeah. any number of things that can happen, but I wonder whether or not yeah. you get 
a group of level-headed and reasonable parents who have had these experiences that would cumulatively just reach out in a, in a positive way to the agency to just say, hey, you know, here's our experiences and our concerns. And so maybe opening that door up for some like um, discussion, do you think that would be worth it? Always worth it. I love your little attitude. <laughs> I'm like always worth it. And I, I'm just trying to think of ways of how I can support that, you know, and I know each um, each region for the state is different on how they interact with the community or do their ongoing education. Granted, we all have trainings we're supposed to take yearly, right? But always worth it. Awesome. And anybody deserves to use their voice. Yes, I agree. Like I said, and I, I just, if you're listening and you're one of those families and you're listening to this because you are interacting or have interacted with Child Protective Services, reach out to me. I'm going to put my contact information. I love to hear from people all the time. Um, but on this particular one, if you are a family and you have had an interaction with CPS um, due to concerns of abuse, um, then, you know, neglect is kind of a different thing. You know what I'm saying? Cause, you know, but, but when we're talking yeah. about the bruises and the marks are the more, the ones that I'm speaking of to this, for this particular podcast, reach out to um, me at the Isaac foundation, because I really think it would be nice to have, um, you know, a group of parents that are willing to have a, a rational level-headed conversation um, with people like in the, you know, CPS offices, just kind of talking about, Hey, we need, we need help. And I think even too, if you're a provider listening and you feel like, um, yeah, it needs to be more clear cut for us because of just, you know, how vague the RCWs are when it comes to this, um, that would be great too. So we want to hear from um, everyone and Meg, could we call upon you in the future? I know that, you know, you're, you are a busy woman, but you are so helpful. And I think it's, it's nice too, because you're not from our area. You have experience in Washington state's child protective services, but, um, would you, could we call upon you again to be a voice for us here and just be able to ask questions? Yeah, I think that's appropriate as long as I'm not um, giving advice on cases. Oh gosh, no. every case yeah. Is different. yeah. Okay. Yeah. May cannot give you advice on any case that you. <laughs> I can be support though. Yes. Yeah. But um, again, I'm kind of thinking more of the, um, you know, if we were to go and have some of these conversations, you might be someone that, as a provider, you could say, "Hey, wow, I think this might be beneficial." So maybe you could listen to our pitch before we go. Maybe that's what you do. Wouldn't that be fun? All right. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much for giving me part of your Wednesday, especially on a gorgeous, although I don't know what your brother looks like there, but on a gorgeous oh, July great. day. Um, I appreciate it. Oh, Thank you. Yeah. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.